just because you and I got on our 10 speeds and, and rode down to an independent storefront and the guy suggested records or we hung out all day because that was the way we got turned on to music does not mean that's how everyone has to get it turned on to music. And by the way, there's most of humanity. That's not how they were turned on to music. We will look back. That was just a way that music was sold and bought and distributed for a couple of decades in human history. Hello and welcome to Here in L.A., Eagle Rock Edition. Today, we sit down with Eugene Edwards, a longtime Eagle Rock homeowner, a father, a husband, a Native American, an atheist, and hold your hat, a real-life professional lead guitar player in a country band. Eugene's also fronted his own power pop band and released two albums. Slices of those tunes will be interspersed here. So let's get to it. We are here with Eugene Edwards. We are. Hey. We're in the same room, same time. Uh, Eugene, first of all, um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for asking. You're a busy man. You are a Fender ambassador. Ooh, I like that. Because you... I think I commit guitar crimes in another country and have immunity. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. You um, play lead guitar for Dwight Yoakam's band. Yes, sir. Not sure if you are, are realizing that, but that's why you're on tour a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing that, that keeps me uh, out of town for the most part. And then I have other work. Uh, fortunately, it keeps me busy when I'm in town. You put out a beautiful power pop solo album. Uh, two, uh, or, at least maybe, or maybe just one of them was good, and that's what you're getting at. Also, you are a husband and a father. Yes. That's a lot on a man's uh, well, you, well, you, calendar. Well, you pick them up one at a time. You don't you don't sign up from all at, at once. That's a thing. It's an evolution. You know, you just you stack those shelves uh, one shelf at a time. You also have a podcast and, and we'll get into that in just a second. No. Um, because of all that, though, I'm thanking you for cutting out a little bit of time for us and for me. Uh, well, let me return to a man the... you've never met before. Yeah, well, I you know, um, I, I believe that people are generally are good. I don't I don't believe that there's there's malice in in the hearts of a majority of, of people. So it says, hey, can you sit down and have a chat? I think, well, that's the loveliest thing that we can possibly say to one another. Um, also, I want to, because here's the thing about me is that nothing pleases me. Nothing makes me more happy and, 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 and erases anxiety more than having a full schedule. Oh. I love waking up and knowing pretty much every hour of my day is compl it's completely accounted. Uh, for, uh, I'll say accounted for, but I don't like to end on prepositions. <laughs> so I painted myself in a corner with that one. But I love knowing exactly what's happening from the moment I get up to the to the, the the moment my head hits the pillow, then I am just Jake, man. I am calm. We're, we're gonna get deep right away, then. Okay. Oh yeah. Let's because jump in. Because why? If you don't have a full calendar, will evil come out? Yeah. Really? I mean, evil. I mean, we'll. Do, I mean, I don't know if there's. I don't believe there's such a thing as evil, but I know what you mean. You're a Buddhist? No, I, no, I'm an atheist. Just like Joe. Jo, uh, you know what, Joe Armstrong, pretty much stated everything. Even even the specifics of so much of, of religious conversation is polemics. So much of it is just it's just the sheer words we use. And I think that's a lot. That's a lot of the, where the disagreements uh, um, yeah, are. They, are they, 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 they hold they, they hold space there. Uh, Krishnamurti had said the word is not the thing. And that's a fan. I love I love because I love Krishnamurti. Um, so he, but Joe, even the specific words he used kind of just kind of explaining his non-belief 
was it was like I remember the thing like oh my god that's uh, he nailed it he nailed which, it which to your point about most people are good at their heart mm -hmm. that's what the the gist of this podcast is we're gonna do fifteen hundred interviews. <laughs> I'm yes. going to be, I'm gonna be love, 69 years old before I'm done. I love the ambition of this. But I think at the end of it all, if I can cross the finish line, well, I, mean, I think the, the result is if people listen to even 10 of them, they're going to say, I agree with Tony. People are generally good. And if you ask them real questions, they'll give you answers like what Joe gave. Uh, well, yes. And I think obviously, uh, well, it's funny because you... <laughs> Because um, we are now, I'll explain to your audience. You're not in my home in Eagle Rock. No, which I'm is not. Unusual. Now, my house, it's it, it was built in the early '50s, and it needs a lot of updating. So it's it's getting torn apart here and there. And I, I just realized I will not be able if I try and make the house presentable to do the interview there. We'll never. And I, you've got a you've got a tight schedule until you're 69 years old. So I didn't want to waste your time. We want to get while the while the while the thing was hot. Right. So I popped over here. And we're very close to, uh, I guess, one of the Scientology centers. Or... I think this is their headquarters in L.A. Oh, okay, there you go. So we're, and um, now, do you, I moved out here in L.A. in 1996, okay. and I first moved to Silver Lake. Yes. And and uh, I remember moving out here in the mid '90s, and maybe you remember this era. Remember when we were all scared shitless about Scientology? I was till I moved here. Until you moved here, I tried to move a couch in here on my first day. Mm -hmm. And the kind of homeless guys, I'll go, I go, I can't move this by myself. Mm -hmm. I'll give you 20 bucks, uh, 40 bucks, whatever you need. Yeah. And they go, where are you going? And I pointed to this church and they're like, no, thank you. Yeah. So we, there was a fear about them, which, which now, and now that seems like they're just, it's just a safe punchline. And I don't mean of any malice. It's just like, we just realized, oh, I don't. I don't, I don't, I don't think anything really awful is going to happen if I even mention Scientology, which is right. where we should be. That's right. Now again, I don't normally speak about this stuff publicly on, on Mike at all, really. But as an atheist, it's it's really kind of it's no different to me than any of the other world religions. You can dig up trash on every. I grew up Catholic. Are you, you telling me there's no skeletons aren't in the Catholic closet? For instance, right? For maybe, instance. maybe some of the worst crimes. Yeah, you know that's it, my patriotism in terms of being uh, being a U.S. citizen uh, lies in really strange places. I realize, but one of the things that where I really feel in my soul, like proud yeah. of my country, is that you can sue the the shit out of the church. <laughs> this country don't play right. Like compared to other countries, this like well you can't do that. It's like here's a no no. I mean you touch my kid. You'll be hearing from my goddamn lawyer, and I and, and I know that's a weird way of putting it, but that is where we are a nation of laws, not men, as they that's say. Right. And it's sort of like, oh no, you can't. I know you're a huge dominant monolithic thing, the Catholic, but you can't do that to me. Right. You can't do that to my kid, and and you can do something about it. Yes, that's very powerful. Talk about the autonomy. Yes. of a person, you know, you're an excitable person. You're a lively character. You're meant for the stage, but you're also incredible behind the mic. I have not heard energy from you like when you talked about Elvis Costello's Get Happy. Yeah, man. Which, and I know uh, uh, there's there's several themes in this podcast, and many of them are you can't put people in a box. You can't say, sure. oh, you're Latino. You have no business in uh, a white guy's country band. Sure. You um, uh, play a Telecaster. You have mm -hmm. no business talking about heavy metal. Right. All this, all this nonsense, mm -hmm. which is total nonsense, sure. right? So, get happy. Yeah. Which I don't believe has any guitar solos. It sort of does. Okay, so that's that's interesting. You're right. What what would attract uh, a guitar? Uh, yeah. If I were to put you in a box. No, no. That's but, a... but the thing is, is that 
you like it just like I love it because there's 20 great songs. It's hooks, the melodic right. movement. Also, he lets the the band is playing in that in that Stax Volt Motown. They're they're just they're playing with a little more a little more swing to him than they were on the previous two albums. That's right. Uh, obviously, so I don't. If I get into the weeds here. Uh, the attractions, uh, you know, the first album that they're on, the, the this year's model, they're playing with that kind of high-powered aggression. Yeah. It's very, very straight eighth notes. With, very, with very... Huey Lewis's news uh, on the first album, right? Yeah, it, yeah, right. You have members of, uh, of mostly of Huey Lewis's band on the first album, and then uh, he puts together the attractions, and that's who we hear on this year's model. And it that's a very aggressive style uh, of tempo, and 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 uh, and then Armed Forces, they're starting to kind of kind of get their own sound together and um, they're influenced by a lot of Bowie and ABBA at that time. But then they, they throw that playbook out the window and make get happy and decide that they're just going to pretend that they're making an old Motown record, which is great. Um, and cause, and of course, Costello's the least <clears throat> accomplished musician on his instrument in that band. But of course he's a great songwriter and singer so that's his primary thing but but when when he needs to like uh imitate uh a booker t or or al green thing he knew he could put that together he can make that go i saw john uh fogarty play the kodak many <laughs> years ago he had four guitar players yeah and he was the only guy that played the solos right we both love springsteen mm -hmm. He's got four guitar players. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, he's got his wife. I guess you, you can't kick her out yeah, of the band. Yeah, she's strong. But you got little Steven. And he still has Nils. And he's still got Nils. Mm -hmm. And then Bruce and, is and a very good guitar player. Yeah. How come Elvis Costello just doesn't get a real lead guitar player like you? Well, don't forget, he. you know what, Elvis? I'm open, buddy. Just, <laughs> I'm good usually Sunday nights through Wednesday nights. Is it just ego? Does he? Because we know he doesn't get along with everybody. Um. Oh, you mean you mean that's why Elvis, he doesn't have like, another guitar like, player? Would it have killed him to have a guitar player? My theory is that that set his overall sound apart. Yeah. Because that was kind of the typical dynamic. And growing up as a kid, a latchkey kid in Yuma, Arizona, and watching MTV videos at the time, because it was just starting in the early '80s. Um. There was Tom Petty and Mike Campbell, the guitar player. That's right. There was like there was the singer songwriter and then the lead guitar player. And there, it, uh, you know, Brian Adams. There's the guitar player. Hugh Lewis. There's a guitar player. There's always a lead guitar player in every rock band, except for this one. Yeah. So I think it was just a way. It was like, well, if we do that, then our our songs will have that guitar solo thing, just like everyone else's. So I think he was always trying to dodge what everyone else was doing, and and that that kind of forced them to not be typical. He also had the theory. secret weapon of Steve Knight. That's right. I don't think any rock and roll keyboard player. He's unique. Has so many flurries going on in the background. Mm -hmm. And then when it's time for the solo, he hands it over to Steve for yeah, the solo. Yeah, there's often. no real. There's Trust me, as a, as, a, as a guy, as a kid who would sit on the edge of his bed and play guitar along with Costello Records, <laughs> there's nowhere to jam some lead guitar noodling. Never. It's really dense stuff. Yeah. So. I think, I which, think is, the, which is also interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so why does Springsteen have so many guitar players? Because, I'm sorry, but growing up doesn't even need one, really. I, I think it's a piano it, song. He's got two right. piano players, excellent piano players, but a lot of his songs, My Hometown, I'm on Fire, you don't even need one. Why, this, is, he, why is he carrying so much weight? I, and then he brings in Tom Morello. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, 
I think the question here is that he has both Steven and Nils at the same time. Right. So, and I think that's a matter of, I think he just kind of, I, I, I don't want to make a Sophie's choice here. I put the band back together. Yeah. Steven's now available. Yeah. But so is Nils. And it was just sort of like, ah, just put them both on the bus. It's fine. Again, we'll I'm going to go deeper with you now. Plus Nils can play lap steel and a great singer. A great singer. So this, I think he can just, just spread things out quite a bit, but I think it's also, it's not about um, how to deliver the music in any specific way. I think now a Springsteen concert, it's like this big family reunion yeah. and they're two men down now. They've lost two East, uh, right. the, uh, East Street band members. So now it's sort of like, while we can have absolutely everybody, let's just bring absolutely everybody. Excellent points. But also you're a touring musician. Mm -hmm. And even though you're ridiculously talented, I, I've only heard one bad note from you mm -hmm. in everything I've seen on YouTube. And I'm not kissing your ass. I, I was I was trying. I was hoping for looking a bad for note. it. Yeah. yeah. I think there's something to be said for the guy in the van who's not a fucking asshole who you can get along okay. with. Now you've hit the thing. So, OK, so this is a question. If, if you're if you have like a national level gig like I do. Um, you will get asked, you know, you, uh, you'll be in a small town somewhere or maybe the opening act and the guitar player, how do you get a gig like this? Yeah. Um, and, and me and other guys, side men, if you will, we talk about this a lot. Look, there's, there's, there's somewhat of a, of a minimum amount of proficiency you, you truly need, uh, on, on any given instrument. You, you have to know enough. Right. It really, it does boil down to, can, can I live with you for two weeks on a bus? Right. The, the hang is so crucial. Um, you know, because uh, like when uh, I was referred into, uh, I was referred to Dwight when he needed a guitar player by a, a great friend of mine and uh, who was already in his band. And, you know, he said, hey, you know, Dwight wants to talk to you. I said, okay. So, um, so I go down to talk to him about it. And I mean, there was a guitar there and, and I picked it up and he had an acoustic and we would, I don't know we he would just start like some old Sun Records tune and I'd play along or he'd start an old Merle Haggard song and I'd play along and um, I don't think we even played but but again we'd play an intro a verse and then we just stop and, and we talk right and so he didn't he didn't need to hear me he didn't need to see well can you play this lick and play that lick yeah he just sort of gestured to me he said well obviously you're you're a guitar player you know are you available to do these dates <laughs> he he didn't want to be burdened with like well let's see your technique it's like right. well you were referred. I know you must have technique. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, and, and I, it probably didn't hurt that. So, well, you know, I, you know, <laughs> no serious addictions, uh, homeowner, <laughs> husband, father, like I have responsibility. So I have, I'm accountable for something. Yeah. So I'll probably show up, <laughs> you know, when I'm supposed to. And that is it. Are you, are you the one that's always late for the four o'clock lobby call? Mm -hmm. It's sound check where the... How often do we ask, hey, where's so-and-so? Those are the demerits. It's not the clams. We know you'll fix the clams. Let's quickly go to venues in LA. The best uh, hall that you've played at in LA and the best that you've heard a concert at in LA. I'll tell you what, I loved, I, I still love The Mint. It's a club, yes. uh, right, you know The Mint? 
Yeah. Uh, There's love- a Bukowski uh, mural. Yeah, that's next right. To it. That's right. That's it. Um, when I had I had my own band for for years, and we re- I really liked playing the Mint. I love the sound from the stage. It was there, but I saw the old 97s play there. I would see acts play there stuff. And I just thought it sounded fantastic. I love the sight lines are small, um, but not uncomfortably small. I don't know. I just thought something about the mint really, really appealed to me. Um, I love that neighborhood that it's in. It's it's mid city Mm -hmm. because it's, it's unpretentious. This could be anywhere, any like good sized town anywhere. But you know, we're going to talk about Bakersfield later. Oh, here. You could you could uproot that and stick it in Bakersfield, and I, it would. It I would think fit. so. The prices I, would be different, but yes. I don't know if the music would be the same, but that club itself. I'll tell you, man. I remember playing there uh, one night. And this is after our daughter was born, uh, and you know she was a baby, and 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 uh, so my wife came to the the show, which uh, was was rare at that time, of course. And um, now we were part of. It was probably three bands on the bill. And we didn't know the the other bands, and I kind of remember just re- reminding my band members, like, look, when we're done, let's not make it look like a fire drill, you, right. you know. And I told my wife, says, look, I know you you're probably gonna be exhausted, and we're, but I I have to at least stay a bit just for appearances' sake for whomever's playing after us. Yeah. And um, so we finish and we get our stuff off the stage, and the next band takes it, and it just it just wasn't good at all. Like it just was. <laughs> And then it dawned on me. I, I leaned. I said, "I'm paying a sitter fifteen goddamn bucks an hour for this." I said, "We're out of here. This is costing me." And then I, I was hostile. All of it. Now that I'm a father, I was hostile to somebody going on stage and being a mess. You're stealing time from me. The most valuable thing there is. I, the n- one non-renewable resource we have is That's time. Right. And beforehand, it was like, yeah, they were terrible. But yeah, I hung. It was long enough. But now it's like, no, this. I, I've got a baby home. I'm not doing this. I'm just not doing this. It changed like that. Okay, let's let's return to Elvis Costello. Uh, okay, because um, you play a bunch of Merle songs mm-hmm. on this most recent tour with with Dwight. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of Merle stuff. And Almost the moment he passed away, we 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 uh, Dwight has dedicated a chunk in the first third of his show, a chunk of his own set. He sacrifices his own material so that we can play some Merle stuff. Which is, but and, but I bet the audience eats it up though they do because yeah. i don't i i think it's a they do they do love it i i, I can't speak for they're the not audience. booing no not at all no they're they're really excited that we're doing that stuff i can tell okay so you do you do an elvis costello cover of of merle haggard's song in your opinion i think i don't think dwight's regarding elvis costello <laughs> I'm, between I'm being, i know i know you're joking, I'm joking. Because I, I say it that way because... Is it, uh, tonight the bottle let me down? I yeah. Uh-huh. And I say it because I don't think I'm alone. I mean, I'm 55. Mm-hmm. And growing up, in the, growing up in the Midwest, listening to heavy metal and trying to listen to punk, but they wouldn't play it on the radio. Right. A little new wave uh, and 80s music. I was not aware of country music until I came out to LA. Hmm. And and Elvis Costello's Almost Blue and, um, uh, and working at the record store and Katie Lang's album... Okay. Got me into country. Sure. And when I heard uh, you play uh, Tonight the Bottle Let Me Down uh-huh. with Dwight, it was half the tempo of what it is on Almost Blue. Right. Because we're doing, we're doing, we're approximating Merle's original tempo. Right. That's where it sits. It's a, it's a slower, uh, what's called a two beat. Uh, two kind beat, of you say? Two beat shuffle. So you hear in the bass. And and Elvis Costello and the Attractions when they did it on their 
their tribute to country music album in the early 80s, which they recorded in Nashville, and they got Billy Sherrill, who had produced George Jones and all those classic, or they got him to produce it. Um, I mean, they took a pause. They did ballads. They did Sweet Dreams. They do Hot Burrito Number One. I'm Your Toy. They, they. But some of the others, like Why Don't You Love Me, like you used to do, is like just really manic and fast. And so they, they took that kind of take on Tonight the Bottle Let Me Down, um, a real kind of revved up, uh, should we say, version of it. We're doing Merle's original feel uh, for that thing, and um, and I love playing in that pocket um, on on that stuff. Um, I'm I, but in terms of Elvis, Elvis Costello in the country, I think it was a lot of a lot of rockers slowly got turned on to country music via that album. I just did an interview recently about Buck Owens, and two of the guys in the interview were, were more, more power pop guys, and they said that they discovered Buck Owens via the Almost Blue, even though I don't think he does any Buck Owens material. I think it's just like, oh, this is country? Um, now, in the early 80s in L.A. at that time, you had a movie called Cowpunk. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that was in short. It was like a lot of guys who'd been in, a lot of men and women that had been in punk bands up until then. They kind of just burnt that thing out, right? There's just only so. What else can we do? Well, again, so, so like the blasters and the knitters, blasters, knitters, rank and file. Right. Uh, Jason and the Scorchers, who were coming out of the East Coast, were kind of also part of that. And Dwight at the time was put into this category, uh, but for a but Dwight wasn't an original punker at all. He was actually coming from, from a pure hillbilly, you know. Uh, yeah, he's come from a, a pure Kentucky, Ohio range thing and what had been transplanted here in L.A. But the, for these other bands, they had been, it's still like it's still three basic chords, um, songs that are expressing a very uh, specific viewpoint. You know, the great thing, one of the great things about country music is that it, it's, it's a narrative form. Uh, the blues uh, kind of rides on on platitudes. And I don't mean this. I don't mean to degrade it. The blues actually hugs um, tropes and and, and platitudes. Woke up this morning, and my blah 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 blah. Repeat. Woke up this morning, blah 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 blah. When you woke up this morning, and then that last line is usually the joke or or the kicker happens there. There's this form, right? Um, and with country music, I think the idea is, is as, as it's been said, it's like somebody sitting on their porch and they're telling you, knee to knee, uh, something that happened to them either that day or something that happened to their grandfather as, as they've heard about it years and years years ago. They're it's storytelling. It's very direct storytelling. Mm -hmm. So some of our more successful rock songwriters, Springsteen, Fogarty, um, you know, they, they it's, it's those storytellers. They when they, when they go into that mode, um, that's when we really feel like, wow, that's a really successfully written song. It's usually if they're hugging the country roots, if you will. Um, so, and I think Costello had up until then had had been just kind of. Point of view, revenge, guilt, as he said, and a lot of just wordplay, get happy. One of the things that appealed to me about that record, I now understand a little more about myself. My brain does certain things with, with words. Um, uh, it's, I've just discovered this past few years, I hear multiple meanings immediately. Mm. So I'm able, I guess I'm always, it always seems as though I'm making a pun as a reaction to things, but it really it's, it's, it's I'm hearing several meanings all at once and um i'm i'm always doing crossword puzzles because the clues make sense to me i always see the double meaning anyway um so then there's elvis costello kurt cobain was great with those uh, double meanings and those puns well, and he was a he was a student of pop songwriting kurt cobain was mm -hmm. so i don't know if people i don't know if costello has the same thing 
that my brain does. I'm not saying that. I think they just realize that really successful songwriting will do that with words. Words. Um, Elvis Costello has a song "Girls Talk," which he writes around that Get Happy era, and he 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 twists the meaning of that. Um, I've got a loaded imagination, and it's powered uh, and it's um, fired by girls talk. But then and then so it's the talk that girls do, and then later on he makes it um, a, a predicate not the subject and and that all makes sense to me yeah um you, you were talking about high fidelity in the same way that is the entire song is he's just punning all the way through he takes the word fidelity latin true faithfulness and then also we but it's become in terms of sound yeah and so he's constantly doing this double meaning thing throughout that it's breathtaking and yeah. a great he opens up a uh, with a uh, Supremes reference. Some things you'll never get used to. And he, he's bouncing through keys, which was really intriguing to me. So, oh, are we in G major? Yeah, we are. There's a B minor. Then he goes up to D minor. What happened? E major. That doesn't fit. A minor to D minor. Where are we? And then... Which, and, which by the way... somehow, the course... Ah, we're in A major? What happened? There's more changes than a dressing room. That is the... The answer to me saying, isn't he a terrible guitar player? No, idiot. He's the greatest guitar player. Because other than Bob Dylan, who else is putting that much time and effort into chords on a pop song that yeah. is being sold to teenagers than a young Elvis Costello? I love, um, uh, in Man Out of Time, uh, uh, to, uh, to murder my love is a crime. Then this chromatic, but will you still love the man out of time? That climb kills me. That's why I love Squeeze. They do the same yes. thing like in uh, Another Nail in My Heart. And they just, the way they were working these chords was so intriguing to me. I was so curious about it. And um, so, if you you know, in, in the songs that I write, some quite a few of those songs tend to have that sort of movement in yeah. there, which to me is all relates to the Beatles. A regular heartbeat, it wants what it can have. Be careful if we meet, it's all good till it goes bad. And I know if it slows, it has passed the test. But this thing beneath my chest, irregular heartbeat. You know, when I moved to LA in, in the 90s and I lived in Silver Lake with the first time I ever ventured into Eagle Rock was a few months because um, there was a movie theater in the mall at the time yeah. and Tuesday nights were like the budget night <laughs> and I saw Donnie Brasco there I can think of all the movies I saw there um, and, it, and, the, and at the time I thought like is this the only thing going on in this mall it seemed rather desolate you know and now it is kind of, my gym's there it's kind of hopping they're going to tear it down that's what, that's what I heard yeah eh. It so, happens. Um, we get, we, you know what? I don't resent changes like this. I'm not one of those. Right. I'm, it's, look, I, you know, I'm sure you're going to talk about gentrification a lot. I don't want to, though. No, no, no. Not with me. Just in, no, to it's anybody. Gonna, it's, I don't want to. But I... So we... Uh, I say uh, Silver Lake in 96. By about 99, 2000. Uh, I'm in Mount Washington. And then we bought the house in August of 2001 in Eagle Rock. Oh, nice. So over 20 years. And I'll tell you, you know, those first several years, it was tough to sleep at night because there's helicopters overhead. Right. And now they're not. Mm. So you're going to have to explain to me how that's 
not good. Right. So, you know, and again, gentrification is usually somebody saying everything was better <laughs> when I arrived. They right. don't talk about what it was like, well, yeah, well, before your ass got here. Yeah. So all the street names in East L.A. are very New York based because guess who was there before the Latinos? That's right. So uh, and I have an, uh, an uncle, a retired uncle. He lives in, in Glendale and he cracks me up because he he's so angry about the cha demographic change in Glendale. And I'm just thinking, well, how do you think John Wayne's family felt when your ass moved here in 1960? <laughs> you know, we don't see ourselves as yeah. the change. Or we don't remember. Or, or maybe we get territorial. Like, look, I went through this crap, and now I don't want anyone else ever moving here. That doesn't mm -hmm. look like me. It's a very funny thing. I'm actually starting controversy. You want some controversy yeah. on the show? If you must. Oh, it's not controversy. It's, but, but I'm starting to really question the word indigenous. And Ooh. I am. Are you? Yeah. How so? Um, well, I did a 23andMe. And, and, and he said Eagle Rock. Well, no, it's a 67% know-it-all, <laughs> which I thought was very hurtful. I resented that. But no, def I'm definitely Native American. and Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. See, no one can guess what I am when they look at me, by the way. Same. It's tough. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good but, point. But I think you, you, I think people feel like they know more about your look, but, but you're absolutely right. Oh, no. I could see total Native American in, here. In, 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 the, in Eagle Rocks, it's like the mall. I remember being at the, well, at the, at the Seafood King uh, market that Joe mentioned, which I love that store. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of this older lady comes up and she's speaking to me kind of excitedly. She's speaking Tagalog, which right. I don't understand. And I'm, don't know what's going on in her daughter or granddaughter the younger comes up and kind of looking at me and and she's and she goes, oh 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 and no and she says something to the old lady and apparently uh, i was being mistaken for like a soap opera star back Ooh, in the philippines nice. so well i don't know if that's not, but i just i just didn't know what i was just lost you know and, and she really thought i was i was i was from the philippines i, I guess so nice. uh, i can be anything i suppose so but but Native American heritage. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Sure. Well, it is. It's lovely. But but, um, I guess my question with this word indigenous, that right. seems like more of a timeline thing, mm. not a bloodline thing. Yeah. Um, and it's a how timeline, far back are we supposed to go? And it's a timeline based on white people. Of course. <laughs> well, they wrote guns, guns, germs, and steels. We've read all the, we've read all the great books about, about this stuff. I'm just saying this is all... It's all very fluid, and, and we, we assume, like, well, I'm here now, so nothing's allowed to be fluid about this. Right. Like, eh, it doesn't really work that That's way. Right. And Los Angeles is no different. Neighborhoods, cities, they have to be organic things. Why did you choose Eagle Rock in 2001? Um... That's a really good question. You were married. We, we were, uh, yeah, freshly were, married. Were you making good money? I wasn't, no. God, no. Was your wife making good money? Uh, she's doing well. She's doing well. She, yeah. So you consider yourselves middle class at that point? Uh, we were... You know, yeah, we were holding, holding. Again, I was a, 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 an independent musician. I'm playing clubs. I was trying to get my career going. No one's paying you for that. I was working temp jobs during the day, doing club. So you were struggling. Struggling, absolutely. What, what, but she what? had she had been saving long before we met. She had been saving and working towards owning property somehow. Wow. Yeah, she was very, very, and I. She dragged me kicking and screaming into adulthood. Frankly. Um, and I God was bless women. Yes. Oh, oh my married men live longer. Yeah. What's her what's her background? Uh well is she, she Native American as well? No, no, no. Like like where'd she grow up? 
Uh, well, uh, all of Michigan and and then Idaho, and so so kind of her father was a salesman, so they they kind of moved around quite a bit. So, but well, a, a, a Midwestern gal, which maybe psychologically, she's like, I don't want that for my kids. Let's let's get a house and settle down. Yeah, yeah, establish fruits, and of course, at the time, I, I think it was. Uh, we used uh, a real estate agent named Tracy King. You probably see her signs all over Eagle Rock, and and she showed this place to us, um, small, but but it was but we could make it work. It was affordable. Uh, it was it was going to take some work. It was a great, great, great spot and a little two bedroom thing that we thought well at least we're in the market. We'll have some equity, and when, and when it comes time for us to start having kids, we'll we'll get something larger. Um, we have our, our daughter is born in 2007 and then, well, essentially, well, by then the market's already nuts. The following September is the recession. And we just kind of realized, I don't think we're going anywhere for a moment here. And, and we didn't have any more children. The three of us, it's plenty of house for the, for us three. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think people real. <laughs> when we talk about real estate in Los Angeles and um, if you don't live in LA, maybe some of the other cities go through this, but how schools, schools really, really push and control the housing market in a massive way. So we were, you know, the high, they were highly rated schools there in Eagle Rock. Um, Even when the helicopters were uh, buzzing through. Yes. That's well, great. because the change was happening. But I, I remember this. I remember we closed in August, on August, mid-August of 2001. And I remember it was like the first weekend we actually got to spend in the house. And we woke up the Sunday Times that morning and the, the Sunday Times magazine, the LA Times magazine, the cover story, it was the, the woman who uh, opened and owned Swark. And it said, Eagle Rock, the next big neighborhood in LA. And I was like, we won, we won, we should sell now. It's not gonna get better, goddammit. And um, so so we saw the change happen. And I include Highland Park in my in, in our lives. You know, what? it's Eagle Rock, Highland Park, and Glacelle are all kind of one thing to me, mm -hmm. to me. Um, but I love uh, the, my band, when I had my, my band, our first gig was at the Women's 20th Century Club on Colorado Boulevard because yeah. it was the Eagle Rock Music Festival, which is a lot different now, which is fine. Yep. But we, it was just every business just oh, there had a had a band in it somehow, and then after that there was a, a bar called Toppers, which is probably now the Chalet, I think. But um, it, was, it was just a little, just a, a ragged little bar, very working class bar, and they didn't have a stage or anything. But I said, hey, can you just let us set up in the corner I, and, and we won't charge a cover? I just want to play. Played a place where people could easily just walk in and find us. Um, so a lot of firsts happened in Eagle Rock, of course, for me. You taught me something about why the Telecaster is the the go-to country guitar. And you were talking about um, picking at the very bottom of, what, so, what do you call that thing down there? This So this is the bridge. The bridge. Right here. Of course, no one can see this, but this is where the strings attach to the body of the guitar uh, near your strum hand. And the Fender Telecaster is just kind of the way it was set up and designed. And there's a pickup, which is a, a basically a magnet, that picks up the vibration of the strings and sends that vibration in through a cord and into the amp that's over there. And um, you're able to pick right here at the back by the bridge and you get a really bright, kind of thin sound that's called twang. <laughs> 
that's kind of the classic country twang. You can snap it. As where now we go to a different pickup closer to the neck, it's going to become deeper and smoother, more jazzy. Playing that same stuff on the pickup. Now here's here. what's crazy. I have watched guitar players my whole life. Mm -hmm. You were the first person to teach me this. I guess you, when you when you watch people play, we take it for granted that you just play. Or I assume there's pedals being happening here. There's no pedals here, by the way. No kids at home, and he's just playing. And the, the only thing that you're adjusting on the guitar is the the little switch there, the pickup selector. So when it's pushed back, it's saying. Uh, pick up the the one the bridge pickup near the, the bottom here, the bright one and then when you push it the other way all the way to the front is this pickup here by the neck which is originally I think Leo thought of this as being actually you to play bass lines uh, because of that deeper sound and in the original Telecasters it's a real muffled kind of wooly weird sound that a lot of people a lot of people don't have any use for it anymore so. Uh, they've modified it or people just put a different pickup altogether there. Um, and then, but yeah, it was like your rhythm pickup. It was a deeper sound. Again, uh, early 1950s, big band jazz. If you were going to invest in an electric guitar, if you were a professional guitar player, you're most likely going to be playing jazz or the American songbook sort of stuff. So changing it. And you hear those sorts of chords and that sort of movement. Or little lead lines would be very much like uh, Charlie Christian and, and Les Paul and these players who were imitating horn players for the most part. That sort of movement. Um, what happens is, though, when country, Bakersfield in particular, is really more rooted in, in the blues, actually. And, uh, so, and you're playing in really rowdy, loud bars, and that tone is not going to cut it. <laughs> Just not gonna, you're not going to be heard. So the gear starts to, you know, the way, and Leo, I know guys who who knew Leo before he passed, and they said you, he was not a guitar player. He was a radio repair guy. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, now, of course, he was older when my friends would go visit him. But if he, if he did have a guitar and he was playing it to test it out, it, your ears would bleed. And if you notice, Fender gear is usually very bright and treble. He's very high. Now, this appealed to guys like Buck. Um, and it's, uh, you know... Uh, Kind of a chicken and the egg, although I don't believe in that, in that act, in that. You're an atheist on that too, right? I, yeah, um, uh, evolutionary biologists would never fall for that. But it is, you know, it, nature nurture, I guess, is the other way of putting it. Because does country music sound the way it does because of the gear, or did they make the gear to sound like that because of what what country musicians needed? Mm -hmm. And Leo was listening to music to Cal, you know, Southern California guitar players. Mm. Um, so they had certain needs, and I think he was probably responding to that and and he probably would have designed a lot of if he would had been based in new york or philly or nashville at that time he's gonna make chicago he's gonna make stuff that served the chicago blues scene mm. you know so interesting yeah um fender by the way manufactured where well they have several plants across the world so they're california the the home uh, home base is uh is out in corona but they have a plant in, in Ensenada. It makes great, great guitars. That's the, those are the made Mexico models. Uh -huh. uh, and then they have, uh, and then of course they think they outsource to Indonesia and China as well for the budget stuff. Uh, you started playing guitar at eight years old. Yeah, seven or eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your daughter is fourteen. She's fourteen. Did you hand her a guitar at eight years old? She's not interested in guitar. 
whatever at daddy's all. into, I'm not into. So she plays piano. Uh, she picked up the ukulele. She's playing banjo a lot. Um, what, it's easier, right? For a kid. Yeah. 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 Do they have kid size fenders oh, nowadays? Absolutely. They, there's student models, which is like, you know, kind of three quarter size stuff in acoustic and electric. Yeah. But Fender, starting in the 60s, he started to make uh, the Mustang guitar, uh, which most people associate maybe with like uh, Kurt Cobain or Liz Fair, Chicago girl. Um, because slightly smaller scale, easier to play. Uh, they even made Mustang basses, which is kind of an easier bass to play. Okay, let's talk about guitar solos in country music. What's your, yeah, you mentioned something about this when we were setting up. What, what's the question? I never, I. The question is, where are they? You get, you get two bars, I feel like. Most country lead guitar players. Are you talking about modern country or just in general? Modern country. Well, mo mo how modern is modern country? I, I'll say um, post. When, when you are on the stage with Dwight. Mm -hmm. You get tons. You do get tons. Oh, but they're not long. No. Oh, 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 okay. Um, okay. So yes. That, okay, and and by the way, why Dwight are seems very generous about that. He's he he's just he plays his acoustic. He sings his song. All the girls swoon, and then he steps back at the right time. You get some love, and then the the steel guitar player gets some love, mm -hmm. and that to me is so beautiful. You're a real band. Oh, yeah. You're a full ensemble. Mm -hmm. You're also talented musicians, but you don't get to play behind your back. You don't get to play with your teeth. You don't set that thing on fire. I don't have to, Tony. <laughs> now, I don't know who you're referring to, but God bless those folks that had to just like go through all that. No, um, so so that is a tradition in country music. You're right. Uh, there, there's we don't really go these long, unstructured, long jam session sort of stuff. Right. Um, which is, which is why we love Southern rock. I was going to say I, that actually. Allman Brothers, I had, 38 Special, all those people. It just crossed my mind that, that actually that is, it's you know, it's a shame. Obviously, it's a shame that Dwayne Allman passed away when he did so young. Because I, yeah. I was, it's one of the sliding doors thing in rock and roll where had he not passed away, where the Allman Brothers were going right at about that time, those, those extended solos yeah. were moving into, I wonder what influence that may have. I like to think that that would have um, created more of a jazz rock fusion with some swing and blues and country to it. But since the Allman Brothers didn't get to extend that thought, yeah. the jazz rock fusion thing became a little more mathematical. Right. It got a little brainy. And um, but anyway, so in country music, the 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 role of the of the uh, the, the the instrument solo, it really is just to give pause uh now here's old history here um up until about 1927 when they had the historic bristol sessions uh which people can look that up but what happened was a couple of guys put out an ad uh, i how, how was 25 dollars a song or 50 dollars a song good good coin for 1927 um they wanted people from all of appalachia and all the all these rural areas to come to bristol tennessee and they had uh, overtaken a, i think it was a hat factory if, uh, if i'm not mistaken they set up this recording machine and they just wanted to get the sounds of america way out there sounds that had not been heard by anybody else right um so the carter family and jimmy rogers are the big big finds out of this they were under discovered before this oh yeah oh my god yeah yeah wow and um so, so, but a lot of people are coming, let's say you're coming out of the coal mine, you know, uh, the, the coal country of, of, of Virginia, or West Virginia. And if you played an instrument, sang a song, you're the only entertainment in the area. 
So you would sing these long ballads, mostly based on Scott's Irish stuff. Um, these, you know, 15, 20 verses telling a very long, detailed story about something. No one's got anywhere to go. Mm -hmm. Go as long as you need to. You're the only thing we got. Entertain us, man. So then they show, so a lot of these folks show up at, at these Bristol sessions to be recorded. Now, of course, the, the gear they're using, you're cutting direct to a disc. And so it's like, um, you're going to have to shorten this. I mean shorten it. Well, the, the needle runs out after about two and a half minutes, three minutes. So this is where we get that three verse song form. The technology ah, demanded it. Nice. Technology puts demands on, no, no one complains about that now. Except me. Well, oh God, yes. You and Neil Young. So, um, so now the point is, so now country music starts when this, well, we have to condense it. We have to condense it. Get to the point. The right. storytelling gets to the point. So there's this really efficient, that Merle Haggard, when you talk about songwriting efficiency, he is so economical. Like he, I, I don't know if it ever, I don't know if anybody got the, the country songwriting format. I don't know if anyone ever got the efficiency down as well as Merle Haggard did. Who writes a better first line than Merle Haggard? All of this is thought out. God, you got to get their attention. Again, if I'm going to tell you a story, look, I said this the other day. The opening line to your story has got to be great. No great story starts with, I was uh, eating a salad once. <laughs> You're making me cough. What's, um, what's the first line for Oki and Muskoki? Uh, we don't smoke marijuana in Muskoki. Yeah. Just to throw marijuana in the first. Here's Back a, then? That's, that's, that's going to catch my ear. How, how about this for a great line? Uh, you think you're gonna take her away with your money and your cocaine now that now it's like okay this isn't okay oh boy someone's that's a challenge what's going on you know that's you're gonna lean in yeah. for something like that so uh again another another songwriter who knew how to borrow from the country tradition that's in just right. the right way was tom petty is it easier or is it harder for a lead guitar player on a country band to only have a short guitar solo solo uh, solos aren't the be all and end all to me at all I, I don't really think of it that way so again country music is a it's really the focus is the song it's a song based format jazz is not yeah. uh you know um so you're saying classical that, music are you is saying not. that playing country is easy and you I can do it in your sleep that. i'm not doing this and it, the 14 year old could get on stage and re journalist replace trick. you i'm not doing this is this why taylor swift is so popular uh, no she's not a pretty girl could do it well, she wrote she taylor wrote incredibly relatable songs catchy songs that completely Tons detailed she just nailed that songwriting form um so so in country music the idea is i'm just i'm just relief from the sound of the voice in the story and we need to get back to the story so i'm a bit of a commercial break but not a long one and hopefully i'm just going to highlight what was already being said or how it was being said some of my favorite country solos are really just a reinstatement of the melody or 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 mama tried uh, roy nichols plays that electric guitar figure at the very top of the song he's out he doesn't play again until the solo and how's that song? Uh, how's the solo start? He's out. And we don't hear him again till the very end of the song. Well, you're out when the crowd is around you. The trouble starts when you're lonely and it surrounds you. It's like a week, a week of 
Okay, I have a question from uh, a listener. What are the three pedals that you need to go on stage on a country show? Are oh, there any? That's a no. That's a great question. Okay, so I don't. You know, I don't even use a lot of pedals on the Dwight gig, really. Um, in fact, the, the pedal board is over back by the amps because I don't really actively switch them in the middle of a song. I use. I'm a big fan of slapback delay, which is a delay pedal. It's just a single slap. And, it, and especially because I, I played rockabilly for so long, so it was natural to do so. So I don't have one here, but it would instead of if I hit the strings once, you hear this. If I have a slapback delay pedal, you'd hear. Ah, you hear two of them. Uh, and so um, I'm running that. Uh, a tremolo is good, uh, mm -hmm. which I do have on this amp, but that essentially just cuts the the volume in and out. So you get this. Uh, so and, doing, and what's the purpose of that? Uh, it's just it's a different. Um, the proper answer is texture mm. so it gives it just a different texture um so uh without turning it on here it's, it's hard i'm emulating this by actually turning the volume knob on the guitar up and yeah. down but so a little bit of dynamics of, sil of silver wings by royal haggard uses tremolo on the guitar and the twang so we get and it's it, it actually draws your ear towards the sound of that instrument but if you're doing the mix you don't have to turn the guitar up in the mix to get the ear's attention. So if you can do something like a little delay, reverb, tremolo, there's a little effect you can put on something to help it jump out a bit, but you're not actually bringing it up because you don't want it to interfere with the vocal, which is the number one priority in country music. Don't step on or bury the vocal. Yeah. Because that's where the story is going to be told. I've got... Oh, so, okay, so yep, whatever. Yep. Slapback delay, mm -hmm. tremolo... And a, and a tuner. <laughs> Which God, in, in between damn, in, in between songs, you're constantly looking at that. Uh... If I well, I am. Um, yeah, or actually, and I have a tech who's right. on top of me the whole time. And actually, I, we have a thing where after every maybe third or fourth song, just hand me a new guitar. Because when you bend your, the strings, I'm just going to assume that I'm going to start going south here, and I don't have time to to fix this myself. So we just, we have, a, and I have a lot of hand signals with them oh. uh, to which guitar I need next or what's coming up. And, or I just feel, and sometimes he's listening and he might hear something going a little funky oh. before I do. And so I'll just feel him coming over my left shoulder and thinking, Oh, Tommy's coming. Get out of this guitar. He knows something I don't <laughs> or God forbid Dwight notices before any of us, but that happened because he has perfect pitch. And, and so much of the, of the, the sound is directed towards Dwight, right? So he's hearing the he's hearing the the cumulative all at once. Yeah. As where I'm really just hearing mostly stage left. Yeah. So Dwight may notice like he or Dwight may like something at stage left is a little bit out, and then it's like we're on it, boss. We got this. And to me, I don't I'm not gonna take a moment to try and tune it. Just give me a fresh one. By the way, these are things the audience does not know. Hopefully not. It's not their responsibility. We're we drinking want... beers. We're trying to talk to the pretty girl. That's right. That's right. We just I don't. I, I don't want it to be like, you know, wow, that guitar player looks like he's landing planes over there. What's going on? It's I don't want to interrupt. Dwight's got a, a story to tell right. over two hours. He has a relationship with this audience. Yeah. It's a long relationship. And I'll be damned if I interrupt it somehow. You know, right. you're there to laugh and, and look handsome. Well, yeah, well, we're still working on that. We're, we're getting we're getting a crew together just for that they're gonna put scaffolding around me i was pumping i was in college i was in junior college 
pumping gas um, at the corner of Beverly Glen and Santa Monica Boulevard, um, right next to Century City. And people, full service gas station, full, all full serve, right? All the pumps um, have to. We have to make until I think around eleven p.m. We're all okay. full service, mm-hmm. and then I think they switched over. And there was a bunch of us there, and <laughs> they looked at me and they're like, "You're in college. Why are you doing this?" Mm-hmm. And I was like, "I just sold a lot of stereos at Federated Group, a really high pressure electronic store." And I kind of felt guilty that it was all commission and I was making the most money from the most ignorant people oh, interesting. who were poor, whereas the high rolling lawyers would come in and demand like the lowest price and talk Weird. to the manager and oh. get the great TV for almost nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, I kind of want to break from this. And so I started pumping gas at wow. this gas station. And what was awesome about this gas station was it was very close to Sony Records. Back then, Sony sure. was was um, um, in Century City. Mm-hmm. But you would also get all these other f- famous people yep. who were going to see their lawyers in, in Century City. And and they would tip us when, they would, when we pumped their gas and checked their oil and their tires. And one lady said, oh, I don't have any money, but in my trunk, I've got all these cassettes. Do you like music? And I said, I freaking love music. For my naps, I'm putting Get Happy in my Sony Walkman, <laughs> uh-huh. and I take a little nap in my car during my lunch break. And she's like, then you know you know that Elvis is on Columbia. I was like, yes. She's like, here's somebody who you probably haven't heard. And she handed me the cassette of Guitars and Cadillacs. And... I was blown away because it because at the record store that I'd worked at previously, they taught me about Hank Sr. and Johnny Cash, and it was great. But there was also this bias towards what was called then young country, which yeah. was more pop, and there was maybe even a synthesizer or something. Like it was, it was not. Obviously, we're not even talking about it today. So obviously, it was not a high point in country music. Yeah, it, it made him. You were, and you know, um, the guitar players were using a lot of co- stereo chorus on their guitars, there and you go. and you know, country. It was innovating. They were going for new sounds coming out of the, the urban cowboy movement. That's right. But 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 now the urban cowboy movement was kind of was just naturally dying off a little bit, and I don't think that the country labels knew exactly what to do. So you got these really innovative signings: Dwight, yeah, Katie Lang, yeah. Steve Earle. Uh, well, the one that I love it, like certain artists that probably would have normally gotten a major label deal got one in that time because no one, it wasn't until Garth and like the country, like, oh, we can do arena rock level dynamics with a cowboy hat that changes the metric. And we're still kind of really in that stage now, believe it or not. But up until then. I think they had a, a, a nice freedom as to what they can sign. They could take a shot on, at something. It was a hit right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah, next was. record was a hit. Yeah. He comes He's this out. handsome guy with this cowboy hat that's, that's different than your grandpa's music. Can I say something? Please. That's imp- This is something for which Dwight does not get credit, if I may. That at that time, young male sexuality was just not associated with country music. No offense, but it was Kenny Rogers and Mickey Gilly and Willie Nelson. <laughs> and I, I'm telling you, man, I like country music was older people's music yeah. in my brain. Charlie in Daniels. Yes. Uh, it just masterful singers, all, all that. I'm not, I'm just talking about in terms of sheer presentation. Yeah. Probably not a coincidence that Dwight was the only country artist played on MTV, the Little Sister video. Right. And by the way, Little Sister, an Elvis song. Oh, yeah. When's the last time we had a young, sexy, 
um, viscerally, uh, you know, just a vibrant male thing. And it was like, I guess Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley, we have to go back that far. Otherwise, it's it's you know all due respect, it's Porter Wagner in a in the suit, and it's yeah. just, it's a different thing, you know. And so I think that um, that had a lot to do with his crossover appeal. Yeah, and um, yeah, it kind of gave it a real. Just definitely a different type of energy than what country had had been up until that point, at least for the past you know decade or so. Live, Dwight gives you lots of room to solo on that one. On Little Sister, yeah, I feel like you get more time on that one. I don't know. I think we're doing the record arrangement. He just he had you know Pete Anderson. I gotta say, when I first moved to L.A., Pete, who had, had been a guitar hero of mine, and when those Dwight records came out, I got them immediately and I learned the guitar parts. Yeah, um, and a huge part of my country music education was and drawn to Pete and what he was playing on those records. Um, and then I, I'm lucky to say and grateful to say that Pete caught wind of me as a songwriter, I guess, really, uh, a few years after I moved here. And Pete had me over. He produced a song of mine. You know, he's kind of, he, he, he did, he, you know, he didn't have to do that. And it was really right. sweet. And then it was just, it was a funny, funny thing that many years later that Dwight would call. And, and I remember Dwight saying, he's like, you know, well, are you kind of, you know, I mean, you have a, I had a few weeks before the first gig and everything. He says, so we'll set you up with whatever you need. To... Is anybody familiar with any of my, my material? <laughs> what? Well, no, I mean, you know, he doesn't know everything. He's hiring a, 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 a lead guitar player and he's not sure if, if or if he's I just a humble that, guy like that. I, I think there was definitely humility there for sure. And, wow. and I just, Mike, I said, is everything in the same, in the original key? And, and he said, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah, that I, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I feel pretty comfortable. This I mean, there was, blows my mind. I have to go through the set list because there were going to be some deep album cuts that maybe I didn't know and I had to refamiliarize. And by the way, over the years playing this, like songs like Guitars Cadillacs or or his version of Little Sister in the clubs, whatever, you start to drift away from what's really on the record. Yes. This is what happens. And that's okay with Dwight. No, 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 no. No, I, no, I wouldn't say that. I just realized that even a song that I thought I knew really well because I had been playing it for years and years and years in the clubs when I go back and listen to the original record, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm, I pretty much got pretty far off the road here. <laughs> and so I had to like, correct. I'm still correcting. Oh. I still check records again, because even now that I'm cognizant, I'm aware of it. Yeah. Every now it's like, okay, you know, make sure go back and listen to the, the, the solo to blah, blah, blah. Because over time, over months or so, you start to just kind of move things around a little bit. So you want to be... Um, I'd like to be as close to the record as possible. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Because you assume that that's what the audience is expecting? Yes. And they want that. And those parts are really important. To, I'm a fan. Lady and I, we dine and talk Springsteen's River Tour? There's my first concert. In Chicago, they had a great rock station. And um, and sometimes they just said, for, everybody, forget it. Springsteen just came out with a new record. We're going to play the whole thing. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And I had heard the buzz of Springsteen. And I had heard Born, uh, Born to Run. And I was also very young. I heard Point Blank on the radio in hmm. the middle of the night <laughs> in yeah. my bed. Uh -huh. And... and I mean, compared to the regular music that was being played. Yeah, really dark. Be it rock and roll, Led Zeppelin, or even disco at that time. Uh -huh. This sh shook me. Mm. 
I was like, and the silence of oh, those yeah. songs. All the space. Yeah. So to your point about Billie Eilish, mm -hmm. like the dynamics of that album, that's what got me. Did you feel the same way in concert at eight years old? Well, the entire thing was overwhelming. Again, it, I just remember kind of when the light, there's no opener. Right, Springsteen does. You know, who, who, so who good. It's just this. It's the activity. It's just like oh, tens of thousands of people, and and there's this din. There's and I'm just look. I've never seen an accumulation. Of, I don't know if we have tens of thousands of people in the population of my hometown. <laughs> and and you know the adults. I'm with my. They're very excited. You know, and and um and then all the lights just drop, and yeah. that's scary. And then just this roar, of, just this brute. You just it's and that I think that probably put my my fear senses on high alert like shit something's going down <laughs> but he comes out first song is born to run and he does it there's such an exuberance he started with born to run yeah, on that tour yeah 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 what and a, so that's the first song i heard live badass. and he comes out and there's such an obvious exuberance from this little man in the spotlight yes and again back to that fear of public speaking things like there's no fear in this guy no. he looks more than comfortable actually it looks like there's nowhere else he'd rather be on a wednesday night that did something. If there's a vampire bite yes. in this narrative, that had to have been it. And then, thank goodness that the album that came out, that this is in November of, of, of 1980, so the River album comes out, and that's the one I'm mostly going to listen to. He did 18 of the 20 songs from the album. So I'm, I'm <laughs> And also, just right, it was dynamic. This is for the rock nerds out there. This is the first album that he did that actually got close to getting the dynamics of that live thing. That was something, that was a challenge they were having. Yeah. So they record at the power station. They figure out how to get this band to play live and get this quiet, loud, raucous, funny. All those dying, all those different shades happen yeah. across the span of this album. So I listened to it because it was my one way of kind of replaying the show. Mm. Right? I mean, that's just what you did. I didn't have footage of it. I didn't have anything at the time. And I kept trying to recreate that night. And who knows, after all various traumas of my childhood it's probably what i why i do what i do now i'm trying to recreate that night that's beautiful is there anything that you would like to say about eagle rock as we let you go um my daughter's 14 this is that's her neighborhood eagle rock she's an eagle rock girl and she was just saying recently just like i love that it's all mom and pops here yes. now we have we can go to pasadena and glendale for the big box stuff and and those are all they have their conveniences at, she, she's a book nut so having a she realizes you got to go to glendale or pasadena go to barnes and nobles or romans but there's a little used bookstore on eagle rock boulevard and she loves to just pop in there and go through that sort of stuff and all the little coffee shops and all the little weird barbecue places that you never step in they come and go and she kind of likes that i think you know that there's a there's a slight funk joe armstrong mentioned the an unpretentiousness and yeah. and that's kind of nice I, I think that uh i think it would always it always been it's it always has been a working class neighborhood now some of the prices above on hill drive and stuff would try to push against that but i know a lot of musicians that have done very well for themselves and they make their lives in eagle rock because sure they go on the road mm -hmm. but your family would like to have just sort of like a really as normal an existence as possible I like to be able to walk to, to a certain place and have this small community feel. Eagle Rock gives that, but you're going to find this out about all the neighborhoods of LA. Um, you know, also when I travel, I should mention that I've noticed this because I, I pop out into you know, all parts of America and the world and I pop back into LA, I go back and forth. And first of all, I remember in the 90s, the first time I we went to Europe, you know, we were mostly in Germany and Switzerland and, and went through Holland or so, but 
And then I gave, and we were out there for like a month or so. And then I got back uh, to Silver Lake where I was living at the time. And, and I woke up the next morning, probably walked around the corner to Millie's to get something to eat. And it just, the sheer diversity, racial, hipsters, old Latinos, just all this, it's like, it just, it just jarred me because frankly, I'd been in Germany at the time, you know, and, and it really, it's more diverse now. Europe's so much more diverse now, but at, in the nineties, it was, wow, this is pretty mono cultural. And, um, it really made me proud to be an American. And that made me really proud to, to live in Los Angeles at that time. Now I've lived in LA longer than I've lived anywhere. Um, and I'm not leaving. As I travel, when people find out you're from LA, a lot of people have no problem just criticizing it. And I tell my daughter this all the time. You're from Los Angeles. You're gonna travel the world. Don't take shit from people about being in LA. We, we make all the stuff that keeps them entertained all day long and then they shit on it. You know, um, I just, I'm just not going for it. I'm just not going for it. Yeah, are we perfect? No place is perfect. And we're not saying we're better than you either, but we're not all here by accident. Also, it's so huge, this place. How could it possibly just be one thing? Right. Yeah. Don't put us in the You know that term, the town, that referring to Hollywood, you know, that represents one of the industries here. But not everybody here is in show business, man. Not everybody here is, it's just, that's just not true. So, you know, and of course, especially decades ago, there were a lot of aerospace, you know, we... I guess maybe the world knew that other things happened here. Now they just think it's just TV and movies and stuff. Um, But uh, there's a lot going on here. And I love, you know, I never thought I would raise a child in LA when I was much younger. Because of the? Well, being a dad was just a, it'll happen somehow. But I didn't think about raising a kid in in a big city. And now I can't imagine doing it any, anywhere else. She, I mean, I think I told you, she was, over papooses by the time she was four <laughs> you know what i mean like like she had had sashimi before preschool and i hadn't had it until my 20s or something like that like she's just exposed she knows so much man well let me ask you this about raising kids in la sure then. especially eagle rock mm-hmm. to me eagle rock seems like one of the safest places there are and yet i've got a friend who lives north of colorado yeah. who says yeah it's fine on my block but do I want my child to ride her bike on Colorado at a young age? Probably not, which is ironic because we grew up riding our bikes in places that weren't that different than Eagle Rock. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of literature and, and thought about this. It, it's not a neighborhood thing. I think there's a certain demographic of us as parents that we we do even the, those of us who don't think we're helicopter parents, even that's a relative term. Yeah. You know, it's it's relative to um, what to parents before child labor laws. Yeah, I guess we're kind of cal- helicopter parents compared to. Well, okay, so Yuma, where you grew up, mm-hmm. what was the name of your mascot in high school? <laughs> <laughs> so I went to Yuma Union High School, and our mascot is the criminal. We're the Yuma High criminals because the original schoolhouse was the. Uh, since at that time abandoned territorial prison that was the original schoolroom and then it then another and then they got a proper school but then when the second school opened they teased the older school of being you guys are criminals because you used to go to the and so now every now and then there'll be a news story or a news crew will come down to my hometown 
And so you're not going to believe this mascot. But I didn't think anything of it. Our school newspaper is the ball and chain. <laughs> I swear. And what, what does the mascot look like? At it's, it's a, games? Well, it used to. Okay. It's a softer version of what we call the crim head. It's just. But when I grew up, it was this hardened looking face guy. He looked just like. Uh, Don Coriel, who was the head coach of the San Diego Chargers in the late 70s and early Air 80s. Eric Coriel. Eric Coriel, thank God bless you. <laughs> God bless you for knowing that. So, yeah, I remember thinking, like, it looks just like Eric Coriel, but it was just kind of this hardened criminal-looking face and an outline. And then somewhere right after I graduated, they went to this real kind of, sorry, but this really Mickey Mouse. It was a perfect circle. Like, they softened up the criminal head. Was it stripes with shirt? Yes, wearing the... the like yeah. the, the, uh, the burglar from... Uh, kind of. Uh, yeah, yeah. Kind of from the McDonald's commercial. Right. Yeah, and then he had like a like a ball and chain. It was just like this old territorial prison. This is my reference. my question to you. Sure. Did you ride your bicycle around that town when you were a kid? Yeah. Did uh, did girls ride their bicycles around the town when you were kids? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, by the way, it's flat desert. Let me say this about Eagle Rock. A lot of hills. So like my daughter, for her to learn how to ride a bicycle, I had to take her to the Eagle Rock Mall, the downstairs parking lot. Where, <laughs> I mean, you just to find flat space is my, a thing. My terrible point. Because I'm childless, so it's easy for me I know. to it's yeah. e easy for me for you to judge. And by the way, I judge all my friends the same way. And I, I it's natural, them. of course. We grew up in kind of the last gasp of full freedom for children. Oh, oh, hold on. Again, that's a perspective issue. And you're going to get better as you do this show more often. <laughs> Let's look at it this way. Please. Let me put it this way. Uh, I, I'm not the first to say this. This is just... When I got on my bicycle when I was a kid, yes, there was two or three motivations. One was just to get the hell out of the house. Right. Fine. The other was to go where my friends were to hang out with my friends. Right. Or go to the library to get to become some sort of culture. Really? Well, yeah, because now lots come in into Yuma, Arizona. You. Well, I'm just saying there's books and you could get albums. Like a lot of my early oh. jazz listening was albums I got from the library. And I was like, okay, Thelonious Monk, I'm getting this. But I could turn myself for free. How old were you? By then, this is early teens, late, yeah. Good, but, good, okay, but, good for you. Oh, thank you. But um, so, so it was to, you know, to pick up culture and entertainment yep. or to hang out with friends. You didn't jump hold on, over hold ramps on. and I'm stuff? I'm just saying. Okay, he's holding yep, up the phone. I'm holding up my iPhone. Now, the, the kid, a young kid now, pick up culture, literature, ideas. It's all here on the phone. Hanging out with friends. I can chat and FaceTime. So I'm just saying the purpose of the bicycle, mm, I'm, and also this is down to bike lanes and, and slowing down traffic. True. This is literally, literally a retarded idea. It Meaning it slows things down. <laughs> right. It's weird that it's like, let's make more room for bicycles. And bicycles, they don't pollute. I, there's great event, great workout. It's fan. I love it. I love it. My my uh, daughter and I will ride around Lake Hollywood. It's a gorgeous way to spend time. Wow. But is the idea to get people kind of moving a little faster and across town? Why are, to go back to something that was developed before the Civil War? <laughs> we're going to accommodate this. This is not innovation, people. This is going backwards. So I just don't. It's kind of like, well, why don't we just go on tour using like a Zeppelin then? If if if, if we're going to go at this rate. So you would get your press. Bicycles are lovely. I'm just saying at our age, we look, there was someone at some point who's two dudes <laughs> such as ourselves not that long ago saying, you know, 
the kids these days they don't even know how to ride a horse. <laughs> ride a horse? They can't even, or, or even just manage a carriage. They can't even draw a carriage and get unasked the camp. There's like whatever. I heard people our age like they, they don't even know how to drive a stick shift. I'm sitting here thinking, why should they? I, I really don't know how to either. Oh no, I mean I, but I'm just saying it's like I hear your, I hear your point. I hear your point. Yeah, let's talk about what what matters to them, not what used to matter to us. Right. I am the old man saying it off my lawn, <laughs> yes, aren't you I? Are. Yes, you are, sir. Huh. But you'll come. And I don't know. Maybe you know. Again, you're going to have. God, I'm so excited for you, Tony. I'm yeah. so excited for you and this idea of yours to do this. This is a big, big, long range project. And I actually think you're going to. I'm hoping you're going to do a much better and focused job than Hugh Hauser did. He's one of my idols. I assume. I Focus, assume. he was able to do it in an hour. We, we're at close to two. I'm just saying sometimes I don't know if he was really, I'm not so sure he was aware of whether what he was talking about was fascinating or not. Right. So I'm, but I'm, you know, hopefully you'll talk to, you're well, going to come you fall in love with your subject. That's sure. why I need Jordan so bad to be my editor. Yeah. You need that second set of eyes. Springsteen had uh, that journalist who edited Born to Run. Oh, John Lindau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the other perspective. So, the idea here is you're going to come across a lot of being people that are going to agree with you in your grievances. Yeah. And hope, but I'm really more excited about <laughs> my grievances. The guests that don't agree with you. Who push back. Who push back. I want people to push back. I, I want we it say to be that. a conversation. We say that. And oh, no, hope, no, no, no. And I'm you're a okay. journalist by nature. Yeah. So, I think that that's going to kick in, hopefully. And right. that's how, you know, you're going to learn. Yes, you're gonna learn, and 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 watching that shift happen is what's gonna be the. I, I'm I'm just so like I said to you on the phone. I'm so curious as to how different you're gonna be when you're done. You know, um, yeah. things will be full circle. It's all it's the journey. Don't worry about the destination. Just Thanks. enjoy that journey because it's a, it's a special thing you're doing. Thank you so much you're for welcome, this. Buddy. How great was Eugene? You know who else are hired guns without whom we'd be sitting on a stool alone and sad? Our Patreon. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony, Jordan, here's some guitar strings. Here's a music stand. Here's a Fender Telecaster, like what Prince and the Boss play. Every donation you hand over helps keep this insane project a rolling. So shout out to our Patreons, Nancy Rommelman, who, by the way, is safe back from her excursion in the Ukraine, Mama Mia, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Greg and Molly, Jamie Taylor, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Granke, Ben Welsh, Henry Furman, Jen Adams, The Lonely Chair, Trevor Wilson, and Bree Wild. Want to hear your name at the end of the show? Go to patreon.com slash here in LA and give till it hurts. By the way, speaking of renovations, one of our Patreons, Mark Johnson, is single-handedly renovating our web presence. And for that, he deserves all the love. So thank you, Mark. Thank you. Also, that was a crowd cheering. Also, shout out to our Angelinos. To be an Angelino, all you gotta do is PayPal us 25 bucks or more and we will list you on the Here in LA website that Mark is building forever. You will also be given a number to denote how early you got in. For example, Angelino number one is Allie Miller. Number two, George Wright. Number three, Rita Joanne. Four, Jason Sutter. Five, Grant Houghton. Six, Rob Baker. Seven, Kev Cheng. And eight is Brenda Garcia. 
Just PayPal your hard-earned cash to busblog at gmail.com. Want to support us, but, you know, you know, we can still, <laughs> you can still help. Post your favorite episode on your Facebook. Mr. Mark Brown just did that. If you want, you can post too. Tweet something nice about this. Tell your friends. Tell them how Here in L.A. is spelled, and it's on Apple Podcasts and Google and, <coughs> and Spotify. Here in L.A. is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and the Steve Naive of this band, Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. Songs by Orgon, Jordan Katz, and you may have heard some finger-picking by our um, guest, Eugene Edwards. Thank you. Special thanks to Cindy for creating the logo, Jen for inspiring this, and Joe Armstrong for telling us about Eugene. Play Freebird! Free bird!